When you think of popular Python packages, what comes to mind? There's a good chance that this week's guest, Kenneth Wright, wrote the package you just thought of. He's the author of some of Python's most popular libraries, including Requests, Records, Maya, and PIP ENV. I got a chance to catch up with Kenneth at PyCon 2017 this year. Here's the story. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 115, recorded live at PyCon on May 20th, 2017. I'm a developer in many senses of the word, because I make these applications, but I also use these verbs to make this music. I construct it line by line, just like when I'm coding another software design. In both cases, it's about design patterns. Anyone can get the job done. It's the execution that matters. I have many interests. Sometimes Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Codeship and Hired. Be sure to check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Kenneth, welcome back to Talk Python. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to have you back. You always seem to have so many amazing projects. And oh, thank your you pulse, very much. And your pulse on what's going on in the community. And we happen to be like right in the center of it. This Yes, today, we're right? here at PyCon. This is my favorite week of the year by far. It's the highlight of my life. It's definitely a highlight for me as well. And it's the fact that I can drive to it and not fly to it. Uh, where do you live? I live 15 minutes from here by car. Oh, I'm very jealous. <laughs> so that makes it quite easy. That it won't be easy. that way next year. No, next <laughs> year is going to be a four-hour flight with no... If I'm lucky, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all good, though. I'm definitely making it there. We'll so, have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It'll be worth it. It'll totally be worth it. <laughs> yeah, so, and, you know, there's a bunch of people that wanted to go to this one, and it's sold out, right? Yeah, it sells out every year. So if, if you guys are listening and you're like, this sounds so fun, I want to come, but it's sold out... Get your tickets early. Yep, always get your tickets early. Awesome. Icon sells out every year. Every year. Okay. You don't need too much of an introduction, but oh, you've done a you. ton of amazing projects that we're going to talk about. But tell people, what do you do day to day? Like, who are you? My name is Kenneth Wrights. I'm well, most well known for being the um, creator of the Requests Library. And I work for Heroku. I'm the Python overlord at Heroku. So I'm the language owner of Heroku. It's not the language owner of Heroku. The language owner of Python at Heroku meaning that everything that's related to Python, basically, that is about the Heroku product is something that I am in charge of. I see. So if I want to deploy my Pyramid or Flask web app... Yes, like it's my job to ensure that you can. <laughs> and <then laughs> or that's decide if that's appropriate. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty fun job. I've never mm-hmm. really had a position that where I had an overlord title. Oh, I gave it to myself. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. that's all right. They asked me what, what they wanted on my business cards when I started. And as I said, Python overlord. So it stuck. But the fact that they let you do it, that's awesome. That, that's really cool. So my official my, title is senior member of technical staff. I see. That's way less fun than overlord. I know. I know. <laughs> but no, it sounds like a pretty fun project. Uh, you like working at Heroku? I do. I've been there for five and a half years and I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. It's a great company. Yeah. You don't think this cloud computer thing, it's a fad? No, I'd say I think we're good. I think, <laughs> I think we're good. It's going to be around for a while, right? Yeah, definitely. Platforms as a service is something that I think is or only more and more people are going to be using. And uh, infrastructure as a service, I think, is probably going to change a lot over the next uh, several years because things like Docker are coming out and uh, becoming more ubiquitous. And there's a lot of technologies and innovation happening in that space. Um, but and I think that's I think that platforms as a service are going to provide a, a stable platform for people to kind of like keep their heads on straight in that world. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I, I like Docker, but I feel like we're kind of like Docker is an intermediate evolutionary step of something else. Like, yeah, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I'm not I haven't used Docker too much. I've only done like little toy experiments with it or building example repos. To me, it feels like a response to a need that exists, but it's like not the answer. It's just like the first answer. Right. You know like what I we mean? have these VMs. They take too long to set up, too long to start. The cache is ridiculous on your machine. If you yeah. use Docker in any capacity, you should check your disk cache for Docker. There's a command to do it, and it, it'll be like 30 gigs. It's you know, there's yeah. a lot of room for for improvement. But I have to give them a, a lot of credit. The Docker for Mac client is stellar. It's a very nice client, and they do they did a lot of work to build it the right way. Nice. 
So do you guys have uh, Docker support at Heroku? We It's not in GA yet, meaning it's not in general availability, but we do have it in beta. Okay. Yeah, and it's available. It, it's You can use it in production if you'd like, and I recommend people doing that, especially if you're using scientific applications. It works very well for that on Heroku. So you can app get install anything you want. You use Conda, for example. Right, so you can have a lot of the machine learning stuff that's got lots of weird compilation all set up right on your Docker image, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, very cool. So maybe tell us, what's it like to deploy a, a Python web app to Heroku? Uh, get push Heroku master. Sounds all right. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> now, so I see you have a requirements.txt file okay. that you use to specify your pip requirements, and that's how we know that it's a Python app. Okay. And uh, we install those requirements, and that's effectively it. And you have a proc file, which is standard on Heroku, which you use to say what your entry points are for your application. So you do like web colon space the command to start your application. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it sounds very cool. And that's all you need. Yeah, so that's maybe a good segue over to the projects that you're working on. Like, you've been doing some stuff trying to make virtual environments or environments in general better, right? Yes, yes. I'm working on a project right now called PipEnv. It's had like 40 releases in the last three months. Uh, it's been quite a bit of work behind it. It's relatively stable. All right, so what problem is it trying to solve? It's trying to solve, i try to be as succinct as possible. It's trying to combine the workflows of PIP and VirtualEnv together as well as make it as easy as possible to enable deterministic builds and solve the UX problem of requirements.txt. Because requirements.txt can be used deterministically, where you just specify all your requirements right. and where all you, your pin versions. Pin all, yeah. And it can also be used in a more human-friendly format, where you just put the things that you want and you may or may not put version numbers in there. Right. And sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's not. So there's a new project from the PyPA, the Python Package Authority, called PIPFile. And it's a new standard that will replace requirements.txt. And it's kind of like a YAML file, is that right? Like a It's a TOML file. TOML file. Okay. Yes. YAML was discussed, but TOML is what we ended up settling on. There are two components to it. There's a, to- a PIP file, which is the human part that you put in the things that you want, like Flask. And then there's a lock file, which is JSON, and it is generated by a machine and can be parsed by machines. And it has the deterministic list of all of your packages that you want to have installed, including all the versions. So if you had Flask in your first file, the second file would have Flask, Wurgzug, is dangerous, click, etc. So that's cool. So it, does it capture the version? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it captures the version and the transitive closure of your dependencies. So you say the top level dependencies and it gets the lock JSON is all the dependencies. Correct. And, it, and you have two groups. You have default and develop. So you right. can have you can say that there are things that you just want for development and things that you just want for production. Right, like PyTest. Exactly. Probably not a good reason to deploy that. In production. production. Yeah, yes. but there's no reason. It's not harmful. But no, it's not so harmful, if you're but doing something like you, Selenium or Django uh, toolbar or something right. like you that. You need the debugger toolbars that give you extra <laughs> access. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe don't put that in the in the, the plain one, right? Exactly, exactly. So that's the new work that PyPA is doing. So uh, yeah, the, that's the, what PIP file is. And so what PIPENV does is it, it allows you to use... So PIP file is going to be put into PIP in the future. Do you have any idea on the timing? There's a man named Donald Stuffed who is solely responsible for almost all things Python he, packaging. He is Mr. PIP. And so he is Mr. the Pi gill Pi. that is responsible for the uh, contention lock on that project. He's doing good work there. I've contributed to helping it come along, but he wants to rewrite it and make it more functional and less okay. object-oriented. And then eventually we were going to land it in PIP proper, so PIP will support it. Uh, in the meantime, you can use it in PIPEM. So you can use the, this great new functionality today. And what PipEnv does is it takes away the brutal frustration of having to create and manage virtual environments. In addition, it also allows you to use the pip file and the pip file.lock, and it gives you a lot of other niceties. For example, if you're, I was using, it was inspired by using Composer for a few moments when I was helping someone with some PHP stuff, which is not something I do, but it was something <laughs> I was, it was helping like a new developer friend of mine walk through a tutorial. And uh, we did composer install something, and it said adding that package to composer.json, and that was when I the light bulb struck. I thought that was a great idea. Yeah. So when you do pipemp install requests, it will automatically add requests to your pip file for you. So you don't have to go and manually curate this file. It'll it'll add and remove packages from so it. So the for file you. exists basically as you pip install things. It'll pip env install things. Env install things. Yeah. It will find that file and like update it automatically. Precisely. All right. And you can lock it, and then you can also specify if you want a Python two or Python three virtual env. 
and uh, it's really nice. It put a lot of work into the UI, and it has some nice colors and braille spinners, and it's 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 a very polished product. Really awesome. And so that's out now, right? People can yes. find it. What's P- the path? To, how do they go get it? Well, you can pip install pipenv, and really also it's available at pipenv.org, and there's a nice little animated GIF that'll or GIF. I'm not sure what the official terminology you're gonna start, there you're is. You're starting a GIF GIF fight. I don't remember. I'm too tired. <laughs> it's PyCon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually don't know which one's proper. Anyway, there's an animated image file that allows you to uh, to see it in action. So, uh, okay. yeah, pipemp.org. You can check it out. Nice. And are you looking for people to contribute to it, or is it kind of doing its own thing, or what's the status? It's relatively stable. What I'm looking for right now is as much feedback as possible so I can know how to iterate next. Awesome. So people should just try it out. I want everyone to start using it because I think it's in a good, great place where it could become the next like virtual env wrapper effectively, the thing that everyone uses to manage virtual ems and be their go-to tool. And I think it's actually ready for that. So okay. I'm, I just kind of want to market it and, and get people to know it. And then once it gets enough, like the snowball starts rolling, then people use packaging tools because they're told to by other people. Yeah. So it needs this to be... This tutorial says type this. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's, it'll be a snowball effect. And it'll, um, that's the goal for the project is to become the next de facto standard and to have all the best practices baked into it so that you don't have to worry about them. Yeah, it sounds really nice. It also sounds beginner friendly. Yeah, it's very beginner friendly. It's also very advanced user friendly too, because it just does all the stuff you would do by hand for you. Yeah. Yeah. Just the beginners don't know what the magic is. And the people have been doing it for a while, like, oh, it's doing these three things or whatever, right? Yeah, precisely, precisely. Yeah. But if you're a beginner and, or, you know, you haven't used virtual env and stuff like that, it just works and it tells you what to type next. You just type pivm shell and it gives you a shell that has your new Python interpreter in it. And it's, it's much more approachable and it works on Windows and it's just a lot of UX polish into the oh, whole yeah. process. Yeah, it's good that it works on Windows. That means it's like really easy to recommend for your tutorial and, and your whatever project you're trying to get set up. Okay, so... That's your new virtual environment dependency project. What else are you up to since we talked to you about two years ago? Uh, I've run, written a couple of libraries that have been interesting. The one that I want to talk about the most is called Maya, which I think is very interesting. How do you spell it? M A Y A Maya. Like the yeah yeah. Like yeah. the Hindu philosophy of the illusion, because time zones are an illusion. So it is a daytime library that kind of turns time zones on their head because when you're dealing with time zones you have to deal with localization if you're doing any time zone algebra normally so as if you want to do any math to calculate this time zone versus that time zone which is something that you have to do a lot if you're dealing with uh, timestamps effectively well, if you're already if you're parsing with, a website yeah for example what were we gonna say i was gonna say like if you're already dealing with time zones you're like you're a little one step down that path as well of like well yeah you can always hack it to work but if you're trying to do things the right way i actually cannot figure out how to do it the right way without using it without building this library so the problem for me was writing a little thing with like an rss feed and it scraped the time from a website and i told it what time zone it was in and like it would report back that the rss feed was being published at like two in the morning and it was like that was not the right time i wanted to be at midnight so I wanted to fix it the right way with the standard library. And I, and I worked on it for like four hours on like three, like four lines of code. And, you know, and I'm like someone who knows Python pretty well, you know, is like not, it shouldn't you be should this be difficult. Two times. Come on. And I spent all that time and then I finally got it to work and then I deployed it and then it didn't work in the production because the server had a different locale than uh, my local machine because uh, the time zone algebra is different when you have different locales. And that was what the straw that broke the camel's back. So I see. It's one thing to have just time zones. It's another to have German time zones versus US time zones or something like that, right? Precisely, precisely, yeah. When I'm doing math on time zones, I don't care what the machine, where my machine is located. It's the same everywhere. It doesn't matter. That should not be taken into account when I'm doing time zone algebra. So Maya exists to be, have the philosophy that your data should always be in UTC all the time. You can import it from another time zone. You can export it to another time zone. You can do that very easily. You can generate date times with it, either naive or non-naive. What's a naive date time? A naive date time is a date time object that does not contain a time zone object. Yeah, sure. So in Python, you... you Which is you surprisingly like... difficult to do. That's not like a one-liner. That's like an eight-liner in Python. Which is crazy. <laughs> if you've got one daytime that has a time... But with Maya, it is a one-liner. Yes, of course. Yes. And 
you got a date time with time zone and one that doesn't, you can't even like subtract them, right? They can't be. I'm not sure what would happen. I think yeah, I it would say can, it's incompatible. Yeah, I think they're kind of incompatible with each other. Yeah. So, and so the way that problem, I, right? the way that you should approach this if you're ever building an application is that all of your data should always be UTC all the time and you should know that. So it should be time zone aware. You should say it's always UTC. You should never store it as anything else other than UTC. And UTC has its problems. Because UTC is off by a second now and then, but that's okay. We're building. This is for humans here. This is a time <laughs> day times for humans. Right. So, so We're the idea is particle colliders. Yeah, that's... this is for parsing websites and dealing with like dates on websites and things like that. You know, you don't. This is not for scientific uses and stuff like that. So, it's all based on epoch time, and it does the math that way based on the number of seconds since like I don't know January first, nineteen seventy, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. And it doesn't use any localization for any of its time zone algebra, and it works very well, and it allows you to. Just pass in. It has two methods for importing stuff. It has dot when, and you can pass in there any English, any human form of a date. Okay. And it'll give you back a, the Maya date time object. That's awesome. Like, give us some examples. Like a week ago, for example, because that's something that you see on a website. Yeah. Right. Or you could just like the way any human would ever write a date. In any way, it'll it'll two put, hours from now. Yeah, two hours from now works. You could do like two four three, you know, or two four fourteen, something like that. That works January fifteenth, twenty fifteen, stuff like that. And you can parse all these. And then there's dot parse, and dot parse gives you it will read all known standards for machine parsable dates, and it'll give it to you in the in the Maya date time object, which is in UTC, and then you can export it from there to a daytime object, and then it has methods to import and export from all the major RFCs for all the daytime objects. So I'm very proud of this library. I think it's great, and I think everyone should use it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely checked it out and, and done some stuff with it. You're right that those are just surprisingly hard problems, and I don't know why. It took me a, like a surprisingly lot of thought and work to build this library, and uh, it shouldn't have. Like It took me a good three days of solid work to build the prototype of it and it so just i had the api in my head of what i wanted and then like to actually get it working properly by using the proper apis and stuff i had to look up so many stack overflow questions and stuff and that's what I, that's the pain i'm trying to help people avoid is right. to ever have to ever do any of that work you're like okay we should solve this once and for all and forever precisely precisely awesome all right well thanks yeah. for that Absolutely. I, so I want people to give that a try, Maya. If you ever have to deal with date times, if, especially if you're parsing websites uh, or dealing with data from another source that has a date time, you should check out Maya. Cool. Yeah, so that, really, that sounds really cool. There's two other projects that I know of that kind of in this area. I know they're not necessarily solving the same problem. One is called Arrow. Yes. Are you familiar with Arrow? And then the other is Python Date Util. Like, can you just maybe so say So Python like, Date how Util is a dependency? Of Maya. Okay. Yeah, Maya use, uh, also uses something called Pendulum, which is similar to Arrow. All right. So where it's kind of like this competition in this space, but they are, we're all friends and we're like building each other up. So I'm using Pendulum to do some of the, I was doing my own date parsing with another like human eyes or something. I have like five or six dependencies that do a lot of the stuff. And uh, I just wanted an API that like put all the tools together and works great. So Arrow, I'm not overly familiar. I had to look at the README to know which one's which off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I always confuse them myself. I, they all weren't what I wanted because I really want this UTC is king slash queen like mentality in my head of that. Like it's always your data should always be UTC and that you can import and export to other things and a couple of them did have that but it it just wasn't as solidified as it, i wanted it to be so okay so yeah yeah that's that's a really cool project I, i've already thank you played with it and i was talking to someone here david golden and he's talking about adding a very relatively complicated class to add um times ranges so okay. it, we may get the ability to do some relatively complicated time range algebra. Right. Where you can, for calendars, like are there uh, exactly. conflicts? Exactly. That's where it's coming like from. Yeah. Okay. Time conflicts for calendars for multi, for like 25 people and stuff like that. That's what he wants to solve. So yeah. we'll see if we get there on Monday. That'd be an awesome add-on. So you're going to do that for the sprint? You're going to work on that? Potentially, yeah. If, we, yeah. if it's a good fit. Okay. Yeah. 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 Very nice. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by CodeChip. Try CodeChip Basic, a free, simple, out-of-the-box, continuous integration service in the cloud. Thousands of customers use CodeChip Basic every day. 
its pre-installed CI dependencies make testing your software and deploying it work out of the box. The average setup time for CodeShip Basic is less than three minutes. CodeShip Basic comes with a free plan that grants 100 builds per month, unlimited projects, and unlimited users. Do you run an open source project? Those are always free on CodeShip. And they just improved their Python support. So give CodeShip a try and visit talkpython.fm slash CodeShip to learn more and sign up for free. That's talkpython.fm slash CodeShip. So another project that you're working on that I think is really nice and has a very, take something kind of overly complicated and make it simple is records. Yes. I don't think we talked about records before, did we? I don't, I don't believe so. I think I, I wrote remember. it after we talked last. Yeah. So yeah, why don't you tell them about records? Actually, someone came into the booth, my booth, and said, hey, tell me about records. Uh, you know, I heard you talking about it. It's really cool. Show me a demo of records. Oh, cool. That cool? cool. Yeah, those guys are fun. That's awesome. So yeah, tell so, everyone else about records. So records is, is, so SQL Alchemy is an incredible library for dealing with SQL. And it is really interesting when you work for an organization like I do, the way that we deal with data is that we use tools like Heroku Data Clips, and we use a tool called Looker, which allows you to get you know access to our data warehouse and do some very advanced queries and get SQL out of it. And I want to be able to take raw SQL that is written, that is trusted by a source, like, for example, Looker, which is like generated by our business team, BizOps team, and put it into my code. And you can do that with like PsychoPG too, very easily. You can just like say, execute this SQL. But SQL Alchemy gives you a lot of other benefits, like connection pooling, and um, it has nice connection drivers, and uh, can uh, figure out what kind of database engine to use on its own, right? Like yeah, precisely, SQL Alchemy, MySQL, it just figures it out. Yeah, and it has a very nice way of. And I also wanted to get back dictionaries of data, uh-huh. so each row is a dictionary. It's also a tuple as well as a dictionary. It acts as both at the same time. Yes. So um, like a name tuple, right? It's a name tuple that is also a dictionary. It's kind of both. It's it's a very cool little little thing. Yeah, and so it's I guess for people if they haven't used it, it's it's a little bit like just the DB API too. One line of it, right? You just like. Well, the idea is if you want to use SQL Alchemy and you want to just do raw SQL, you have to Google a lot of stuff. And it's like a good, if you want to do it properly, it's like a good 25, 30, 40 lines of code. Kind of got to break out of the object ORM side of things. Yeah. And then there's some niceties that you want to build into it. And then it ends up being 100, 200 lines of code, 300 lines of code. So I built a library for that. And in addition to that, I also built exporting. So as I have another library that's very old called Tablib, okay. and it gives you tabular data sets that you can export as Excel or as um, CSV or as uh, a bunch of formats, JSON, YAML. So this supports that as well. So you can take your, your raw SQL, you can get Excel out of it, you can get TSV and get CSV, you can get awesome. HTML tables. How, you know. Yeah, very, very cool. So, so it's just basically for taking a report from SQL and, and sticking it into your code base and either using it to power your application or to generate a report. Okay. And there's a command line tool that comes with it too. So it's very little useful, small little thing. Right. It's a fun little toy, but yeah. it's very, very powerful. It's cool. It seems to me like if you just want to connect, ask the database a quick question, like this is a really nice way to do it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and you don't want to use SQL Alchemy directly if you're doing that because, right. again, you have to look it up, and it's not very intuitive. And there's if you want to parameterize your queries, it's not standard. It took me a while to figure out how to parameterize queries in a standardized way that works across all query languages. So you don't really need I had to figure out a lot of stuff to get it to work <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. So I solved all those problems with records. Nobody wants to be little Bobby Tables. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. By the time you put all the correct pieces together, it's a lot of work. Yeah, so exactly. So it's easy if you're going to use PsychoPG2 or something like that to... They have good parameterization in PsychoPG2. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. If you're going to use something like SQL Alchemy or anything like that, if you're going to be using raw SQL, it's really easy to not parameterize properly. So one little plus with the string and the variable, and it seemed all so innocent. Yeah, so innocent, so innocent. What could possibly go wrong? I just merged that one pull request that I got from that stranger, and then suddenly all my bank accounts were empty. It, it didn't I make any sense. I it's, don't know what happened. This world's complicated. <laughs> so, are there other projects you want to talk about, or maybe just stuff that inspires you? So, interesting things in the Python world right now for me are API Star by Tom Christie. Yeah, so he's here, not far from my booth, and a little not too far from your booth. 
And he's doing really cool stuff. He's the Django REST framework guy. Yes, he is. Yeah, okay. So he built this thing that is a new API framework for Python 3 only. And it uses type annotations in the first way that I've ever nodded my head in agreement. Whenever I've seen type annotations, I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Why well, don't want that in my Python? But when I see him using them, I'm like, oh, I get it. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's re- it's kind of a cool idea. And I, I used it to throw together a little toy API the other day. And it the cool thing about it is that it's not Flask. I love Flask. It's, Flask is incredible. I'm a contributor and maintainer of Flask. It, Flask is one of my favorite things in the world. But... It's just nice to, to change things up. Yeah. And the really cool thing about it is that it automatically generates documentation for you. And it's interactive documentation. Awesome. So, and it uses the type annotations to do that, among many other like crazy uses of type annotations, right? Yeah, it's like a really cool project. And it's really early on, but it's getting a lot of hype. So he's going to like put in all this work, and it's I think it's going to soar. It might be like the next Flask for API design, maybe. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's it, looking really, really promising. It might be companies hiring API star developers one day. Yeah. You know, it'll, yeah, it'll yeah. be... I can see that. It's nice to be there at the beginning, you know? So I encourage everyone to check it out. Yeah, it is, it is really cool. I was impressed with it as well i'm gonna have him on the show in a few weeks yeah it's also one of those things when i'm using it it's so different than what i'm used to that i found it a little cumbersome yeah so i'm not actually sure i'm not endorsing it necessarily i'm just thinking that it's really interesting to me because it's something so different here's something new and fresh yes i I need that i think like i really get bored with using the same libraries all the time because they're so good the ones that we have and i it's nice to get a new tool in my box that's like, oh, I could use this for something. Yeah, for sure. And that's a rare thing for me. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's really great. And also, I mean, he's already been maintaining Django REST framework. Yeah, so he knows a lot about APIs and self, and it's all about self-described APIs too. So he supports VDN and HAL and all, or is it HAL? I don't know. He, support, he supports all the self-described API stuff. So it's all hypermedia friendly and yeah, it's the, the, the very proper REST framework stuff. There's a project, well, I guess he's going to talk about it, right? Yeah, I guess so. You can go give us the preview. Okay, there's a client that comes with it too, and it's called Core API, and it's the kind of a complement to it where any API you write with this, you can consume with this thing called Core API. And there's a command line client for it, as well as a JavaScript client for it, as well as a Python client for it. And you automatically get, because they're self-described APIs that describe themselves, uh, you get a fully, like, you don't have to write a client for your API. It's oh, just already done. Cool. Wow. And in the docs that he generates show you how to do it in all three of those languages built in. It's like a really solid piece of work. I'm very impressed. <laughs> that is super cool. Yeah, the thing that I thought was interesting was here's a guy who is very committed to Django REST framework, uh-huh. creating a new framework. And that caught my attention. Like, wait, weren't you doing that? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, he can't start from scratch with Django REST framework. It's built on a long heritage of a way of doing things. And this is like, what if we could start again Python 3 only right now from scratch? You know, and what if we it? take Django out of the equation? And that's really important because Django is not necessarily the best thing to be building APIs on necessarily. It's not necessary. Right. It's got a lot of stuff to support rich web apps. And you can use Django as a library. So you can import Django into an API Star app if you really want. And then you could just start using your models in it. I mean, there's nothing stopping you. Yeah. Yeah. How interesting. <laughs> All right. What other uh, projects? Projects that I love. Yeah. I'm really in love with DocOpt. I've always Doc loved Opt. that. Yeah. DocOpt and Click. There are two command line libraries. I was playing with Click the other day. Click yeah. and DocOpt are kind of like uh, matter, antimatter of each other. Like yeah, they're one. very opposites of each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, DocOpt is you. It's amazing. So it's the opposite of OgParse. It uses OgParse. So it turns out when you type any command in Linux and you get you do dash dash help and it prints out like the thing with the brackets and all this stuff with the commands. Right. Sometimes that, it's super complicated with lots of symbols separating things and the, the Yeah, there's all these angular brackets and stuff and it's you're you're just kind of like, okay, I it can infer what that means. That's an ANSI standard it turns out. And so you just write that help string in docopt in Python as a as a string and then you say parse my arguments and it just magically knows exactly what to do. So you don't have to write any parsing code. And it's just amazing. So it's good for small things. Like yeah. if you're writing a command line thing that doesn't have any like sub commands, maybe like one or two sub commands, it's okay. If it can fit into a single help printout screen, then DocOpt is great. It's an option, yeah. Click is fantastic and a very engineered piece of project from Armin Roenicker, the guy from Flask, and um, a good friend of mine. And he 
again, it's very engineered. It's uh, like everything from Marmon is <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. It's very, you, you can dive deep into it. And it is, uh, if you're going to build something that has a lot of structure and a, something that has a lot of subcommands and something that has... Right, something like Git, maybe? Yeah, Git or PipEnv. PipEnv yeah. uses Click, for example, because okay. it has, you know, I have like five or six subcommands and they all and they have different arguments and different defaults and DocOpt wouldn't be a good fit for that. But Records uses DocOpt, you know, different tools for different tools. Yeah, <laughs> different dependencies for different dependencies. Yes, different precisely, yeah. precisely. Awesome. Other projects you, you've been loving lately? Those are the things that come to mind off the top of my head. I was talking to the Beware guys that are over here. Yeah. I'll do, I guess, a little bit of evangelism for the project. Cool project. It is a cool project. I knew about it last year, but they've come a long way. So Beware allows you to, in pure Python, with a pip installable module that is no C extensions or C dependencies at all, Write native Python with a very CSS inspired graphical representation of that's how you like manipulate the graphics is with like a CSS style Python thing. You can render Windows Forms, Cocoa for Mac OS, and GTK for Linux, and web, single page web apps for the web, and Android apps, and iOS apps, all from the same code base. And there's no C compilation whatsoever. And the thing that I'm excited about that I just learned about during PyCon was that they've taken that and they've made a project called Briefcase, which allows you to package up your application into an executable distributable, which is something that I used to work with quite a bit. And there's a lot of packages out there that allow you to do that, but they're very cumbersome and they're all very different. They sometimes work. And they depending on your dependencies. It's they all you can always get them to work, but it's uh it's a challenge sometimes. Yeah. Right. Especially if you're using something like PyQt and yes, embedded exactly. web kits and it's it can be very cumbersome. So it's I'm very impressed with the demo that I got. So I think it's pretty cool looking and I might start playing with briefcase. I'm really I like shipping executable distributables. Yes, exactly. Like that I feel like that's one of the shortcomings we have is that we don't ship that many hey here's my app, double click it and look at the amazing stuff it does. As a Python community? Yes, yes. I completely agree with you. Yeah. At the the keynote here we saw like this hockey stick growth of, of Python and you can see it across other metrics and like Stack Overflow trends and other places. And I just, I think how much deeper would that be if we had a solid desktop UI story? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that could just like, Man, people you, already love it so much. The second you said that, I was like, I could fix that. But I, I have a policy of I don't want to build things I don't want to, that I'm not dog fooding. Yeah. Or I'm not sipping my own champagne. I don't have any graphical user interfaces to build. So, yeah, yeah. But I, I would love to. That'd be so much fun. I would love to see that. That, do, that do, I could write the documentation for that. There you go. That's what it just. It's really a documentation problem. Yeah. Well, and those guys have some pretty solid. You stuff. just have to say this is the proper way, and then people do listen to you. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> do it this way. Do it yeah. This way. Awesome. All right. So, um, other projects. Top of the run through your your high. High love list. High love list. Those are the ones that have come to mind. Flask, always great. I'm technically a core contributor and I'm going to, I've been running out of things to do in my free time lately. Like I've just been really bored and I've been dying to figure out something to do in open source lately because I've been working on pipamp and stuff and, and that I've kind of atrophied with like things to do there because it's kind of done yeah. and I have to wait until I make a new decision to make any progress there. Because it's it's very stable, right? That's why you need people to kick it around a bit, and then yeah, I need more users. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It has a, a nice user base, but I need the masses to come. Well, you're used to a different level of user base. Precisely, <laughs> precisely. Yeah, I only have 10 million users. No, just kidding. I don't remember where I was going to go with that. But what, you, what was your question again? What uh, what other projects do you love that you're like? You said you were thinking about contributing to something, or oh something yeah, like so I'm. Might make a point to start actually being a real maintainer of Flask. I think okay. that would be good. Help triage issues and stuff like that. And I would be proud to say, I did say earlier, because I'm planning on doing this, that I am a committer to Flask. So I've had the commit bit for like three years, but I've I've only merged like three pull requests. Sure. You know, I've never really done anything with it. But I, I would be really proud to add that to my resume that I'm like, that I help maintain one of the most beloved pieces of software ever, in yeah. my opinion. I love Flask. I think it's just the best. Yeah, I love the simplicity of Flask and, and yeah. the frameworks, right? Just one of those things, though, where I, as a user, I don't have any 
complaints. Yeah. So I, I don't know what I don't to work do on. To it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure if you open the issue tracker, you'd find quite the opposite. But yeah. I have as the I don't have any complaints, so I don't have anything I want to work on in it. Yeah. I guess maybe, I don't have any ideas because it's one of those things that's written by someone who's a lot smarter than I am, Armin. Well, I think, you know, around a lot of those things, one of the places where it could open up is the whole async await mm, stuff. Mm. But but that's so much the, the whole whiskey. Well, that's whiskey. Yeah, that's yeah, a whole other whole animal. The whole stack is like not really ready for that. Flask right? channels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Django channels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. We yeah. need Daphne for. Daphne for Flask. All right. So maybe, I mean, maybe that's some, somewhere that needs some pushing. I'm not actually familiar with all the options out there for that. But yeah, I don't know what that would look like. That'd be interesting. It's interesting to think about, but at the same time, it, it might not be a problem you have, right? Like, I find these web apps are actually quite fast already. Yeah, yeah. If you build things to be scalable, which just means they need to be predictably the same speed, less stateful, and then you really don't have any problems. And I think everything's pretty fine. I don't think we have to really go into some bleeding cutting-edge concurrent worlds if we don't have to. I think it's wise for things that you're consuming, like for requests, for example, we're planning on going to async. You are? Yeah, I was it, about to ask you, what's the plans for requests? So async is going to make its way in there, so I could like it, await a, a request.get, maybe a get async? A get, uh, yeah, exactly. There would be a new set of, AP, of, of calls. Like right now, there's request.get, request.post. So there would probably be a request.async.get or something like that, and, it, and then you would await on that. And it would just work. That sounds like the business. Yeah. So are you familiar yeah, yeah. with, uh, what is it, AIO HTTP clients? I don't know exactly I, what. Guido walked me through the code once, and uh, it seemed relatively straightforward. It seemed yeah. like Gevent, but with explicit instead of the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So uh, I'm really excited to hear about this async request stuff. Yeah, it was, it, we're working on it on during this? the sprints. So, well, Corey is working on it during the sprints, I should say. There's a project that we depend on called URLib3. And that is something that is being, V2 is being worked on by Corey, one of the core contributors to requests. Uh-huh. And he is going to work on the preliminary async stuff. Getting, he's going to get ready. He's like refactoring it, rewriting it. And it's going to be in preparation for adding async to that. I and see. then so once we add async to that... And then you're like, all right, we're going to do this. And then we're going to do it, yeah. And then in maybe six years, we might get to flip those APIs around. So maybe the default in request would be asynchronous, and then there would be a sync that would be separate. Right. But that would maybe happen in like six years. That really async. depends on how the community moves and stuff like that. Right. I, yeah, I right. highly, I honestly would be surprised if that's how things move, but well. I'll, uh, we'll see. People find concurrency confusing. They really do. And I, I'm hoping that I can really help bridge the gap with requests to make it be like, this does not have to be scary. This can be exactly what you're used to, except for magically amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited for, to hear that. Like, it is challenging, but I was talking to somebody, uh, a listener of one of the, the other podcast Python Bytes that I do, mm-hmm. and I'd cover the AIO HTTP client stuff. And they said, gosh, I'm trying to remember the numbers. It's like, oh, I had this project where we do a lot of scraping or, or API calls or something, and it would take 16 minutes to run. Yeah. They flipped it to the async version, and it ran in like 30 seconds, and it actually crashed the machine because it was like doing too much. All, they had to, like, oh, throttle, they had to it. throttle it. Mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just like... people, It's because people don't understand. I'm not saying they don't understand, but I, I feel like there's a basic simple computer science i'm not a computer science student by any means but there's like you know you have two things that a computer is limited by that your program's limited by it's io bandwidth and cpu bandwidth and if if you don't understand those things it's very easy to if you do understand those things you can not use these new async things and you can get very good performance with just using threads or just using multi-process or in doing stuff like that the magic of async is that, you know, it just takes that to this logical extreme where you have these event loops that are just like... Yeah, and I, th- I think actually what they were running to, I think they might have run out of memory because they had too much pulled in at once. Yeah, instead of yeah. Or something like that. But just the, like... It's, really... it, it opens up a whole new can of worms of things that people don't understand. And that's one of the things that I kind of prefer synchronous programming yeah. myself because it's something that is approachable and people understand. And so I think 
I want to encourage people to understand how to better optimize synchronous code. Yeah. And there's some great things for that. So there's a product like Minold. Have you seen that? No, I don't think so. It's a WSGI server that you can use with GUnicorn. Okay. And it is it uses an asynchronous event loop, but you just turn it on. And it, you, it just spawns every request gets like a new green thread or something like that. Mm -hmm. And your code just magically is asynchronous. You know, and it's just oh, like, nice. that's yeah. how Gvent works too, but it's not using monkey patching. Right. And, um, and that's the kind, that's the level of async that I like is where it's, it's at like the thread level. Right. It's I don't like, want it to be at the code level necessarily, unless it's something like requests doing it. I don't personally sure. want to be writing code that is, dealing with this stuff. I want to be consuming the code that's dealing with that stuff. Right. Yeah, so I think those are solving slightly... Like, as a software engineer, I don't think people should have to touch the async IO APIs. I think that they should be consuming them. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, on one hand, like, any server environment, it's like almost, by the time it gets to your code, it should already have taken care of that problem. Precisely. Right. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, if you're on like your one app, unless and you're, you're like to working out, for a major company, you know, a company that has some major technical issues, right. like, not I mean, issues, but technical problems that they're yeah, challenge yeah, yeah, yeah. challenges. Yeah. And they're like, we're going to solve this problem in this really cool way. And right. then you discuss your Instagram, yeah, your urban like airship that. or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah precisely. Exactly. exactly. But. Most apps don't totally need it. Yeah. So, but that example of 16 minutes to 30 seconds really is like, uh, well, you could really get a lot out of that. And to see if I could use requests to do that, then I would just make me smile. Yeah. Well, you can do things like that today because there's a, there's a library called request futures, which is really great. Okay. And it uses the concurrency, uh, dot futures module to allow you to spawn off either threads or sub processes or, uh, anything else. There's also, a G request, which I wrote a very long time ago, which is not very well maintained, but it allows you to use a G event with requests. Okay. So there are ways to do this today. And again, you can do it at that module level. So you just write your synchronous code and you just kind of wrap it in an asynchronous paradigm. You know, use something like Celery and then you can, you, and then you get concurrency out the wazoo. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Hired. Hired is the platform for top Python developer jobs. Create your profile and instantly get access to thousands of companies who will compete to work with you. Take it from one of Hired's users who recently got a job and said, I had my first offer within four days and I ended up getting eight offers in total. I've worked with recruiters in the past, but they were pretty hit and miss. I tried LinkedIn, but I found Hired to be the best. I really like knowing the salary up front and privacy was also a huge seller for me. Well, that sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? But wait until you hear about the signing bonus. Everyone who accepts a job from Hired gets a $300 signing bonus. And as TalkPython listeners, it gets even sweeter. Use the link talkpython.fm slash Hired, and Hired will double the signing bonus to $600. Opportunity is knocking. Visit talkpython.fm slash Hired and answer the door. Let's maybe talk a little bit about PyCon. We're sitting here yes. in an extremely large room that's actually luckily quite empty right now, so we can get some good audio, but it's been very busy. It has. It's been very exciting. What, what's your takeaway for the week? You had a good time? I've had a fantastic time so far. I'm sad that you're at, you're speaking about it retrospectively. It's in the past, right? It's halfway over, I guess, ish, right? Yeah, and more it, or less, yeah. And it make, the heart breaks my heart because it's um, it's my favorite time of the year, and I feel like I just got here. And I did just get here, so. Yeah, it's really amazing. Like, every time I come here, it's just so many great people to meet. And, you know, this year I had a booth, so, like, I really got to meet more people. I didn't have to, like, randomly run into them. Yeah, you know? yeah. Which you have the Heroku booth that you're hanging out at. Yeah. And it's just. For me, PyCon is the one time of year that I, I have, like, a family at home, of course. But it it's really, the Python community is my true family. And I get to really be with my family. Yeah. And I get to do that when if, I don't really go to as many conferences as I, as I used to go to, but PyCon has always been the home, like coming home conference because you get to see almost every single person and they're my best friends in the world, you know, and it's utterly fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah, there's a, a couple of people that I've been working with really closely for a long time, but I've never physically seen. My biggest takeaway from PyCon so far has been these fidget spinners. The world has become fidgety. They're solving a fidgeting problem this I, year. Yeah, but, I went out to the Saturday market here in Portland. And I just got a higher-end one because there, there was a booth <laughs> here at PyCon that was giving out fidget spinners. All right, tell, tell people what the heck is this fidget spinner thing. It's uh, something you hold in the center, and then you spin it, 
and then like you can rotate it and you feel a centrifugal force and it just gives you something to do with your hands. Yeah, I guess I'll try to describe it. Like imagine a little um, weighted circular thing with a, a fixed ball bearing like an axe an axle almost in the middle yeah you spin it really smoothly yeah they're for they're kind of designed the at least the hype on the internet is saying that they're designed for kids with add okay and i have add yeah, okay. uh, and i find it to be very useful i usually am vape vaping like a electronic cigarette yeah. and that gives me something to do with my hands and i right. find it very pleasurable on many levels and I find it difficult to be a PyCon because I can't, like, be vaping we're, when we're I'm walking around. inside, more or less, yeah. Yeah, so I have, like, a nicotine patch on, and that helps. But when, as soon as I got one of these, I, like, totally forgot about smoking. Because it's just giving That's me something really else to do. So it's I'm actually really loving it. Yeah. Yeah, fidget spinners. And it, I think it's going to help me a lot because I work from home and I'm in meetings. And I'm usually yeah. smoking during the meetings, and yeah. it's kind of rude. So. Yeah. I'm going to start, and during my podcast, if you listen to Import This, you'll hear like little, this weird puff sound. It's because I'm vaping. So I maybe I'll start fidgeting instead. Yeah, you'll be fidgeting. And those things are dead silent because they're like smooth ball bearings. So. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to try it? Yeah, let me check this out. Yeah. All right. Well, this is high end. Yeah, that one's really cool. Wow. That was, it was $25, that one was. This one was free. And then this one was uh, 15 I bought from a kid. They had they were they set up a little shop downtown and there the kids were selling them. Kids don't do ice cream stands and uh, lemonade. No, they're stands selling anymore. they're selling spinners to raise awesome. raise money for research for their autistic brother. Wow, that is actually super cool. Hey, it was a great story. That I had really to buy amazing. one. Yeah, I, I don't need can't. three of them, but I you know I, you had to get at least. I had right? to. I can't say no to that. Yeah, that's right. So did you go check out the keynotes? No, I do the hallway track at PyCon. Yeah. So I'm I make a point much. to not go to almost any talks. I went to Corey Benfield did a talk on requests under the hood and i went to go support him at his talk but that's the only talk i've been to so far and there's a really great talk at the end of the day tomorrow on nes video games and hacking them with python that's got a lot of so uh, i'm probably gonna try to make it to that one (laughs) yeah i mean people should check out what is it youtube.com slash pycon 2017 it's already videos are already showing up oh really yeah yeah there's like I don't know about the talks yesterday, but the tour tutorials are up. Yeah, and they have um, they're transcribed live. Yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah. These, these guys do a great job putting. That I'm on. really impressed with the accessibility of this conference. I've seen people here with wheelchairs, which is yeah. I I don't I've never noticed that before. I'm sure it's been a thing, but they also have teleprompters. Not teleprompters, but what's the opposite of a teleprompter? Telescribe? Yeah, like like a live transcriptionist type thing. Whatever. Yeah, like you have in court. Yes, except, exactly. But for the videos during the talks, and it, all, even the questions that are being asked are being transcribed, and I very, it's just I love this conference. It's a great conference. Yeah, and I go to a lot of conferences, and PyCon is by far my favorite. That's cool. All right, so you've been walking around like I have been. I'm not been going to. I went to the Jake Vanderplas's keynote on why Python is popular in science, and it was actually brilliant. Really, I talked really, to him about that yesterday afterwards, but inspiring. I missed it. Was it really? So the, the short takeaway is, like he's like said, like look, Python is a mosaic of people using it for different things, and they're coming in it from different angles. The way like a astronomer, astronomer might pull up some data and like play and iterate with it is very different than like you and I might write a web app we went very structured. Yeah, And it's yeah. like a static thing that we build up over an architecture. Uh-huh. And just like... Talking to people from different backgrounds who use the same tools in different ways yeah. gives you a really interesting perspective on life. Oh, it does. It does. Yeah. And Python gives us this common ground to, to build upon. You can meet people who work on satellites and who work on web apps and who hack and who. Yeah. It's amazing. And you just, you're all like family with each other because you just speak the same language. Yeah. It's amazing. Last night I went to dinner with some of the guys from PyCharm and oh, a bunch yeah. of people from the Data for Democracy group, a bunch of data scientists that are doing like volunteer work for democracy and freedom around the world. Like, yeah, that's, that's, awesome, that's right? just ridiculous. This is, I love this place. I truly always regret not staying longer because I'm staying for only one day of the sprints. Yeah. And I always wish I'd stay longer because I really wish PyCon was all year round. I just wish this was my life. Because it's it really is like coming home. It's yeah. it's really nice. Yeah, I totally recommend the. If anyone the is track. listening and hasn't come to PyCon, I want you to know that my first PyCon, I paid for myself. I didn't have an employer paying for me to go, and I wasn't making much money at the time. It was a very large expense, but they do have financial aid available. I probably should have applied at the time. It was worth every penny. It totally changed my life, and I had been doing Python for like quite a while at that point and it was a big deal for me to go to my first PyCon and I, I can't recommend it more that's awesome I definitely want to second that and 
as far as tech conferences go, this is pretty affordable for the size and scale. Like a lot of like OzCon, oh, I looked at that yeah. as like fifteen hundred bucks. Conferences are extremely expensive. This is a very approachable and and it's doable like conference. dollars or something. Yeah, but when you add up the hotel costs and the flights, and it's you know, it, the travel. If you're not making you know a, a really good developer salary, then it it's you know it's a lot of money. If you can't drive in from like some four hour radius, then it starts to really get intense. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah especially the hotel costs. But they they have financial aid available too so if there's any reason that finances are a reason that you can't come to PyCon apply and they'll like give you a free ticket it would be cool for somebody to set up some kind of like web app before these events so people who are like looking to room share and like save money like find your your PyCon roommate forgot about that wouldn't that be fun that'd be a fun project to set up wouldn't that be well cool I know in years project? past that was a thing because I, okay. I remember the year I went myself there was like a mailing list of people right. trying to find room shares I'm not sure if it must still be a thing I, yeah, I assume but not, maybe be, not I don't know it'd be cool to make make something like that I assure you it did exist yeah, yeah awesome. <laughs> All right, so yeah, definitely if you guys are out there listening and you haven't come to PyCon, you should come, but you should get your tickets straight away or you won't be able to come. Yeah, it sells out. And and it's cheaper the earlier you buy them, too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Kenneth, thanks for being on the show, man. Always a pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the show, and I want to really thank you for all the great advice you give all these developers. And I uh, listen to you when I'm taking baths all the time. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) That is awesome. I really You're the only, actually, you're the only one I still listen to. I don't listen to podcasts often enough to be caught up on them, but you're always the one I pull up to listen to. Wow. That's, so I listen to you on the way here, actually. How cool. Awesome. Yeah. So really quick before we go, tell people about your podcast. Oh, I have a Python podcast. It's called Import This. Uh, if you Google Import This Kenneth Writes, you'll find it. Uh, it's on SoundCloud. And uh, I do very long interviews with Python friends of mine, and we just catch up and talk about Python. And actually, we talk about things that are unrelated to Python often, like their lives and stuff like that. And I just put it, it's very un, unfiltered, uncandid. It's a raw, natural conversation. Yeah, there's no editing or anything like that. I mean, it's produced, but it's not. I just hit record, basically. So awesome. it's, a, it's a great little thing. And some people really like the longer format podcasts. So it's one of those. If you, if you need something on your commute, you should check it out. <laughs> awesome. And I'll definitely be sure to link to it in the show notes so people can just click on it and go there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. Thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, definitely. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest has been Kenneth Wrights, and this episode has been brought to you by CodeShip and Hired. Do you have software? Would you like to know if it has bugs before you deploy it? Then jump over to talkpython.fm slash CodeShip and set up a free CodeShip basic account, ship tested software. Hired wants to help you find your next big thing. Visit talkpython.fm slash hired to get five or more offers with salary and equity presented right up front and a special listener signing bonus of $600. Are you or your colleagues trying to learn Python? Well, be sure to visit training.talkpython.fm. We now have year-long course bundles and a couple of new classes released just this week. Have a look around. I'm sure you'll find a class you'll enjoy. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. Corey just recently started selling his tracks on iTunes, so I recommend you check it out at talkpython.fm slash music. You can browse his tracks he has for sale on iTunes and listen to the full-length version of the theme song. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Smix, let's get out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best. Developers, developers.